This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hello, and welcome to Food Stuff. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And, oh, this episode kicks off a whole series of special celebration episodes that we are conducting. <laughs> yes, we are conducting them. Uh-huh. This is the first of, uh, well, some of you might have heard we went on a road trip a couple weeks ago. Yes, a field trip road trip, along with our super producer, Dylan. Annie and I went up to uh, to Kentucky to try some bourbon and a bunch of other stuff. Yes, and through poor-slash-excellent planning... <laughs> We went the week of the Derby, but left the day of. Yeah. We, like, got right out of town. Yes. Like, screw this cultural icon. Right. (laughs) We're going home. Yeah, we just wanted to wear the hats, but that was it. (laughs) Wear the hats and try the juleps. Um, And uh, we had an excellent time, and everyone was fantastic. Kentucky was beautiful. We were in Lexington specifically, so we weren't even in Louisville where the Derby is, but— there were plenty of horses, nonetheless. Oh, my goodness. There was horse statuary everywhere. I'm still a little bit creeped out by it. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it was it was an amazing experience. We also we also rolled audio for an embarrassing amount of time during it was like eight hours. the trip. Yeah. Um, and we've got some of that to share with you now. So uh, do you guys want to talk about some derby foods that we ate? Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're on, we're officially on our way back 
from Lexington yes. to Atlanta. We are. We have said our farewells. We did. With they, whiskey. <laughs> we did, as is appropriate <laughs> in Kentucky. Yes. We learned the Kentucky hug, the Kentucky hello, <laughs> the Kentucky goodbye, or some other ones, and the, the Kentucky breakfast. <laughs> just bourbon involved in all of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we ate things other than bourbon while we were there. We did, we like, did. Like bourbon balls. Yeah, yeah, we ate some bourbon balls. Yeah. So every distillery has, and I'm pretty sure the same person makes them for every distillery, Ruth's. Ruth's, yeah. Yeah. Candy Company makes bourbon balls, which are, uh, which are like a bourbon fondant uh, in milk chocolate with a pecan on top. Yeah. 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 And, but they, they, they make, she makes them for each distillery out of that distillery's bourbon. Right. And, um, they're included in tastings. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very pleasant surprise. Yeah. Oh, man. Take a bite of the chocolate, taste of the bourbon. Take a sip of the bourbon. See how it changes. Changes the flavor profile. Uh, it's lovely. It was really lovely. (laughs) Um, uh, we, definitely ate things that weren't bourbon. But we're struggling to think of them. Oh, we had we had a good time, didn't we? We really did. And from this, we have a whole road trip episode that's going to come out, some bourbon episodes, of course. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, the, the whole trip was started because the lovely humans at Wild Turkey slash Russell's Reserve got in touch with us and were like, hey, do you like bourbon? And we were like, yes. Mm-hmm. And this all snowballed into a field trip. So, yeah. So uh, today, e- even though the Derby was, you know, a few weeks ago, as we're recording this, we're going to talk about Kentucky Derby foods. We absolutely are because we got to try several of them uh-huh. during our time in Kentucky. Yeah. Um, and we wanted to start off with a brief history of uh, what what is going on with the Derby and why is it in Kentucky? Because we didn't know. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely no idea. I, neither of us are particularly horse humans. No. So, yeah. This no. was all slightly mysterious to us. Yes. Again, we were in Kentucky during Derby time. Had no idea. Yes. All right. <laughs> so, Kentucky Derby. What is it? Well, the Kentucky Derby is a spectacle horse race, spectacular, spectacular, uh, conducted every year at the Churchill Downs racetrack in Louisville, Kentucky. And I'm from Ohio and South Florida, so I can't say Louisville quite correctly. There's like an extra syllable of vowel in there. That Can you say it for me one more time? Louisville? Yeah. I'm not physically capable. And anyway, um, in Louisville, Kentucky. And the race is 1.25 miles long. That's two kilometers. It's run on a portion of an ovular dirt track. And three-year-old thoroughbred horses are eligible to compete in it. Twenty of them wind up running the race every year. And they're picked by scoring points in 35 races leading up to the Derby. It's over in two minutes or less. And the top five horses split a prize of $2 million. The horses? Well, hypothetically, the owners of the horses. (laughs) But I'm not going to tell a horse it can't have a bank account. Horses are terrifying. They are. We talked about that quite a bit on our trip. There was so much judgy-looking horse statuary, you guys. I'm. She's still recovering from it. I I am. (laughs) That haunted look in my eyes. Mm Mm-hmm. 
The Derby was first conducted in 1875 and has not missed a year in the past 144, making it the longest-running American sporting event. Oof. Mm-hmm. Kentucky has a much longer history with high-quality horses, though. Uh, one of the people that we met on this field trip of ours, a Woodford Reserve brand ambassador by the name of J.P. Mattingly, explained it a little bit for us. We unfortunately were not running audio. Uh, it's the the... Biggest disappointment of our entire trip. <laughs> he was a very charming guy, and he had a beautiful Kentucky accent. He did. Um, but, uh, yeah, but but essentially, here's, here's Kentucky and horses. So Kentucky is set on an ancient seabed of limestone. Limestone, as we sort of discussed in our episode about sodas, is a mineral composed mostly of a couple crystal forms of calcium carbonate, and it forms over millions of years from the compressed shells and skeletons of marine animals like mollusks and corals. And its heavy calcium content means that plants that grow in soil containing limestone are fortified with calcium, which is part of what gives Kentucky bluegrass its beautiful bluish hue. It also means that when animals like horses eat that grass, they get a super dose of calcium which is, like, really good for horses because they've got those frail little horse bones and that really heavy musculature. So, you know, fewer broken legs, better muscles, good times. Yeah. So the whole area has long been famous for its horses. Its excellent horses are why it was one of the four states during the Civil War that was largely considered part of the Union but was allowed to continue practicing slavery. Uh, you know, in those times with, with railways still in development, horses were the mode of transportation, especially as the rail systems were unavailable during these times of war. Right. So, uh, yeah, horses are big in Kentucky because a bunch of shellfish died there millions of years ago. Makes sense to me. Perfect sense. The Derby was founded in the traditions of English and French horse races. Uh, the founder, who was a Louisville, can't say it, Louisville native um, uh, by the name of Meriwether Lewis Clark Jr., the grandson of the Clark half of Lewis and Clark. Yeah. That's Lewis and Clark? That Lewis and Clark. <laughs> he spent some time with horse enthusiasts over in Europe and came back wanting to start a similar culture in the States. And then his uncles, John and Henry Churchill, gave him the land to develop a, uh, a stadium on. 10,000 spectators attended the first derby. Fast forward to today, over 160,000 people attend the derby on site every year. And that is to say nothing of the myriad of derby parties that occur throughout the country. Yes. I went to one in Atlanta last year, mostly because I wanted to wear the hats. <laughs> and I like to think that before before we announced where it was we were going, this happened to be around the same time as the royal wedding. Oh, yeah, we which might... is also a hat event. Exactly. So yeah. I like to think that some listeners thought, ooh, maybe they're going to the royal <laughs> wedding. Maybe they got an invite. No, we did not. We, we passed a town in... I think in Kentucky called London. We did. And we were like, ooh, we're, we are going to London. Yes. Because we're nerds. We are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of foods associated with the Derby. We're not turning this into a horse show. No. Trust me, we're not. No. Um, most of these are lo local Kentucky staples, with uh, Kentucky cuisine being heavily Southern-influenced, but with a few twists and peculiarities. Um, the big 
Derby foods are hot brown, burgoo stew, and derby pie, plus the iconic mint julep cocktail. But there's also cornbread and barbecue and cracklins and pimento cheese and potato salad, peach everything, pecan everything, bourbon everything. Yes, bourbon everything. Literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's nothing it cannot be added to. Right. <laughs> and in case you were wondering, yes, there is an official Derby menu served at Churchill Downs Racetrack every year to an elite 20,000 or so guests who have paid premium uh, ticket prices. This year's menu included chilled oysters with a country ham slash green apple mignonette, uh, plus fennel, celery, and caviar. <laughs> they also had uh, a dish of fresh carved turkey breast with bourbon peach glaze. There's a bourbon in that peach. Also, mushroom braised pork medallions with grits and pickled asparagus. That is very Southern. That is heckin' Southern. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it sounds delicious. I hope that it was. We're going to dig into some of these derby foods, and we're going to start, as as you usually do, with the cocktail. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The mint julep, the muddled past of the fanciest drink for the fanciest sport. What an elitist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Had to get that out of my system. No problem. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, the mint julep popped up several times in Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind. It was mentioned in F. Scott Fitzgerald's book, The Great Gatsby, as well. So eh, kind of that elitism thing. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. William Faulkner is said to have enjoyed a mint julep in his day and would occasionally go behind at the bar at a Hollywood establishment and make his own. <laughs> that sounds like him. <laughs> And Ernest Hemingway once allegedly threw a glass against a water bar in France, angry at the inferior quality of his drink, shouting, doesn't anyone in this godforsaken country know how to make a mint julep? <laughs> and the story goes, that I, hi- I highly don't <laughs> believe this is true. I highly doubt this. Uh-huh. But the story goes that some travelers from Kentucky overheard the kerfuffle and pulled out a bottle of Maker's Mark. <laughs> I knew all Kentuckians travel with bourbon in their bag, and uh, they told the bartender to get some fresh mint, and then they whipped up the, quote, real deal. <laughs> Fun story. Don't know. <laughs> I, I, you know, I love, I, love a, I love a good fairy tale. <laughs> I do as well. But the mint julep, what is it? Well, it's the official drink of the Kentucky Derby since after Prohibition ended in 1938. Um, these days, about 120,000 are guzzled at Churchill Downs on the day of the Derby. That's about 10,000 barrels of bourbon, 60,000 tons of ice, and 1,000 pounds of mint. Ooh, that's quite a lot. It is. Mm-hmm. Supposedly, the founder of the Derby, one Meriwether Lewis Clark Jr., planted mint for juleps on site at Churchill Downs when he founded the track in 1875. And specifically, uh, the julep is this really simple cocktail of bourbon, simple syrup, and fresh mint served over crushed ice. There's some disagreement in the ratios involved, but usually it's between a two to one and four to one bourbon to simple syrup. Simple syrup, if you're if you're unfamiliar, is is just one part sugar to one part water that have been heated to, to melt the the mix into into a liquid format. So juleps can be quite sweet, um, but that's tempered with the herbal punch of the mint and that cooling factor of the ice and also the mint. There is also disagreement over the best way to mix the drink and and get the mint into the cocktail. Uh, Like, you can just toss everything in a cup and, like, stir it with your straw as you drink it. 
Um, you can shake the bourbon and simple syrup with a little bit of ice to incorporate them before you add them to the cup. You can muddle the mint into the bourbon and the simple. You can shake it with them, uh, then either strain it or leave it in there. For large parties, you can steep your simple syrup with mint to avoid the whole question of muddling and straining altogether. I would opine that the fussier versions are probably the tastiest. Though, like, full disclosure, this this might just be, like, cocktail snobbery creeping in here. Mm-hmm. I would say that you the, – the, the proper way that I would make a julep uh-huh. um, is to take a few mint leaves in the palm of one hand and just give them a good hard slap with the back of your opposite hand. This, this bruises the leaves. You're breaking the cell walls to release some of the tasty oils that are inside. You then gently wipe those bruised leaves around the inside and the rim of the cup and discard them. Because bruised salad in a glass is gross. Yeah. Yeah. In a shaker, uh, I add the bourbon and the simple, stir them to combine, half fill the cup with crushed ice, pour the liquids over it, add more ice to fill the cup, and garnish with a big, fresh sprig of mint. Serve it with a straw. And I realized as I was writing this for the first time, I'm not sure why this is the first time that it occurred to me, but I must sound like really high maintenance all the time on this show. You know, Lauren... (laughs) I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> no, I I once read that um, it was one of those, like, quotes you see on a pillow uh-huh. at a tourist location. Oh. Uh-huh. Like, I'm not high maintenance. I just know what I like. So there you go. <laughs> tourist pillows, they know what's up sometimes. Perfect. Um, and I will say, in my defense, there are even fussier versions. There are a lot of recipes online if you want to look them up. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. I, I've i made the party version, and I made it way too strong. And it was really <laughs> funny because there was only one person in the party that could drink it, and it was my mom. Dang. <laughs> and then Go team Mrs. Reese. Yeah, go. Go, go get it. Um, and then I, like, made them individually, and I always start out with, like, a fancier version, and then by the end I'm just, oh, throwing, just everything throwing everything in the glass. In. Yeah. And by the end I mean, like, Many days or weeks have passed, and I still have the ingredients. Oh, sure. The first time I make it, I'm like, I'm going to do this right. And then I'm like, well, I'll just throw it in there. (laughs) Um, Another thing we have to talk about is the glassware. Juleps are typically served in a silver or pewter cup with shaved or crushed ice. And this is to facilitate the formation of frost. And the proper way to hold a mint julep is by the top or the bottom And this means that the ice melts slowly. I also read, and I don't believe this is true either, but I did read, uh, that the straw was invented because of the mint julep to get to the the booze at the bottom. Because there's so much crushed ice in there. Right, right. And it all kind of locks up a little bit. So that's not true, I don't think. I'm pretty sure they had straws in ancient Egypt. Yeah, exactly. Like like maybe metal straws were invented because of that. It's possible. But, oh, oh, uh, quick science corner. That pretty frost that forms on the glass uh, forms because of hydrophysics. Hydrophysics. <laughs> okay, so air generally includes some amount of humidity, right? You know, vaporized molecules of, of water. And water can evaporate and remain in air as vapor when the temperature and the air pressure are high enough. Generally, the, the warmer and denser that air is, the more water vapor it will contain, assuming that there's a source of water around. But... As temperatures or atmospheric pressure drops, vaporized water will will form up into liquid from the air and then collect as dew on the solid surfaces around it. You can observe this with any icy drink. The, The air that's coming into contact with the sides of the glass 
the air becomes cold enough that it hits its dew point, and water will therefore bead up on the sides of the glass. But with a julep, okay, you've got you've got a large volume of crushed or shaved ice, uh, the greater surface area of which means that it gains heat extra fast. Uh, an iced drink doesn't radiate cold, it rather absorbs heat, creating an area of, of relative cold around it. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that ice situation, if you're using a metal cup with that crushed ice, metal is an excellent conductor of heat energy. So the combination means that heat is just shooting into the cup from mm-hmm. all around it. So the air around the cup cools below the freezing point. So the dew that collects either freezes into ice when it hits that metal or it collects as ice crystals in the first place. And that's the frost on the sides of a glass. Well, that is pretty cool. Literally. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> well, let's move on <laughs> um, <laughs> to the history. Yes. Oh, yeah. This is a good one. Yeah. Okay. The history of the mint julep might go as far back as several centuries to an Arab drink made of water and rose petal called the julep. Um, when the julab or julab made its way to the Mediterranean, the rose petal was replaced with mint, which was indigenous in the area. Julep is derived from the Persian word julab, as in the Indian dessert gulab jamun. I never once found these when I was in India, and it's one of my biggest food regrets. Oh, it was no. on my list. I said I wanted to find them, and this one night where this guy who I'd met <laughs> called me at like 12 a.m., and he... I didn't hear the phone go oh, off. Oh, no. And he was telling me he'd found some, and I think about it to this day. Oh, I'm sorry. There's an alternate universe where I answered the phone. Yeah. And I tried them. Are those, the, are those, those like a, like, it's, it's sort of like a, like, cottage cheese or, like, farm farm cheese that's, that's, like, fried and then dipped in rose water or, like, sugary rose syrup? Mm-hmm. Oh, those are really good. There's places in town we can get some. Oh, good. Yeah. I might be mixing it up because there's two that are very similar. And I've had the one, and I haven't had the other. Okay. But I'll, I have my list, and I can make sure. Well, that thing that I'm talking about, we can we, we can, can go rectify. like tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. <laughs> as far back as the American Revolution, Americans used julep to refer to any sugary cocktail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in the U.S., it was first associated with Virginia, not Kentucky. Uh-huh. And in 1770, what may be the first written mention of the julep appeared in the Williamsburg, Virginia Gazette in A Short Poem on Hunting. That was the title of the poem. Right. Yeah. It goes like this. The sportsman ready and the julep o'er, which doctors storm at and which some adore, we soon are mounted and direct our way to brusque the coverts where the foxes lay. I think uh, that went over my head. I'd have to analyze that one a bit more. Another early written mention of the mint julep came out of this state in 1803, the state being Virginia. Um, a dram of spirituous liquor that has mint in it, taken by Virginians in the morning. The spirituous liquor of this early iteration could be rum or brandy. It usually was not whiskey at this point. No. And yes, taken in the morning, it was, of course, seen as medicinal and was used as a morning picker-upper like coffee and as a cure for a stomachache or any uh, swallowing issues. Ah. Yeah. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) That's, yeah, it's bracing. Sure. Mint 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 has medicinal properties. Mm. Further on that in our upcoming... Who knows when, but surely one day we'll cover mint. (laughs) Surely. Um, Another origin story 
Or perhaps the next step in the mint julep's evolution tells of a Kentucky fellow searching for water to add to his bourbon, and he stumbled upon some wild mint, which he obviously added to his drink. Probably not true. (laughs) But in either case, poor Southerners probably started swapping out the more expensive rum or brandy for the cheaper bourbon. Right. By 1816, silver mint julep cups were prizes to be won at Kentucky country fairs. A little bit fancier than those stuffed animals that we get these days. That's true. The prize, they've really gone down. (laughs) (laughs) Who do we write to? (laughs) We'll find out. Don't you worry. (laughs) In 1850, Henry Clay, the senator from the senator from Kentucky, allegedly popularized the mint julep at the Willard Hotel Bar, the Round Robin. Some sources say the bar still uses Clay's recipe. That recipe is delightful. Okay, this this is from this is from Clay's diary. The mint leaves, fresh and tender, should be pressed against a coin silver goblet with the back of a silver spoon. Only bruise the leaves gently and then remove them from the goblet. Half fill with cracked ice, mellow bourbon, aged in oaken barrels, is poured from the jigger and is allowed to slide slowly through the cracked ice. In another receptacle, granulated sugar is slowly mixed into chilled limestone water to make a silvery mixture as smooth as some rare Egyptian oil, then poured on top of the ice. Wild beads of moisture gather on the burnished exterior of the silver goblet, garnish the brim of the goblet with the choicest sprigs of mint. Only the choicest sprigs. Only the choicest in your burnished silver goblet with your <laughs> simple syrup like rare Egyptian oil. I hope that's what the description is. Rare, <laughs> smooth as some rare Egyptian oil. <laughs> like, I got to get some of that. All right. <laughs> Goodness. The mint julep was appreciated by many politicians in the U.S., including several presidents. Andrew Jackson, before he was president and a friend, supposedly drank a bunch a bunch of these things at a cockfight in 1795. Okay. President Theodore Roosevelt used them to convince members of his cabinet to play tennis with him. <laughs> After the match, he'd take whoever agreed to play out for rounds of mint juleps. His preferred julep was with rye whiskey and brandy, though. Uh, that was the popular way to, to make it for a long time. Uh, yeah, either with a combination of rum and brandy or whiskey and brandy. Right. At one point, Roosevelt had to defend himself in a court in Michigan from what he claimed was a libelous article that was calling him a drunk. <laughs> Under oath, he said, There was a fine bed of mint at the White House. I may have drunk a half dozen mint juleps in a year. To which his lawyer asked, did you drink them all at one time? (laughs) I can't understand why the lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) But Roosevelt won the suit. Yes. Um, Good. 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 Yeah. Yeah. In 1877, famous Polish actress Helena Wojcicki attended the Kentucky Derby, and she was toasted by the builder of Churchill Downs, where the Derby is held, and the builder, Mary Weather Lewis Clark Jr. Anyway, he toasted the actress as she's given this huge mint julep that was meant to be shared, but she drank the whole thing <laughs> and then ordered another. <laughs> so she must have enjoyed it. Oh, good job, Helena. Mm-hmm. Around then was when whiskey became the primary ingredient in juleps, partially because of a thing that we've talked about on the show before, the great French wine grape blight. Yep. Up until then, brandy had been the popular drink of the southern upper classes, but French brandy is a grape distillate, so it suddenly got really rare and really expensive. Simultaneously, a lot of southern tipplers were hit by financial losses due to the Civil War and emancipation, 
can't say I feel terrible for them. Also, simultaneously, uh, whiskey distillation technology was improving, so the quality of whiskey and bourbon available was going up and becoming more acceptable to the refined palate. We got refined palate. Mm-hmm. Um, a writer for the Lexington Herald wrote in 1891, Then comes the zenith of man's pleasure. Then comes the mint julep. <laughs> <laughs> so clearly it had cemented itself into Kentucky's cocktail culture. Um, and this Cemented. Cemented. <laughs> Sorry. Here we go. <laughs> okay. The article continues. When it is made, sip it slowly. And the final paragraph begins. August suns are shining. The breath of the south wind is upon you. It is fragrant, cold, and sweet. It is seductive. No maiden's kiss is tenderer or more refreshing. No maiden's touch could be more passionate. Sip and dream. It is a dream itself. No other land can give you so much sweet solace for your cares. No other liquor soothes you in melancholy days. (laughs) Sip it and say there is no solace for the soul, no tonic for the body, like old bourbon whiskey. (laughs) My heart, be still, my heart. (laughs) Yeah, right? I love love all of this. Well, here's another one for you. Oh, buddy. <laughs> yep. 1949's The Mint Julep, The Very Dream of Drinks by J. Sol Smith came with this passage. It is the very dream of drinks, the vision of sweet quaffings. The bourbon and the mint are lovers. In the same land they live. On the same food they are fostered. The mint dips its infant leaf into the same stream that makes the bourbon what it is. The corn grows in the level lands through which small streams meander. By by the brookside, the mint grows. As the little wavelets pass, they glide up to kiss the feet of the growing mint. The mint bends to salute them. (laughs) Gracious and kind it is, living only for the sake of others. The crushing of it only makes its sweetness more apparent. Oh, that got dark. (laughs) Like a woman's heart, it gives its sweetest aroma when bruised. Among the first to greet the spring it comes. Besides the gurgling brooks that make music in the pastures, it lives and thrives. Oh my goodness. Right? This is I can't I can't say I'm surprised based on like the the, the just general verbose poetry of, of language that we ran into when we were hanging out with various people in Kentucky. Like I think this is kind of like the thought, like the yeah. pattern of thought in that area. That's great. There were several times where I personally felt we were in some book with the way people were speaking. I was like, I I wasn't aware people (laughs) actually spoke this way, but it's lovely. Yeah. Very intense. Yes. Very poetical. (laughs) Very poetical indeed. Um, And speaking of poetical, in 1951, a band called The Clovers released a song called One Mint Julep about a man who finds himself in a bit of a bind after One Mint Julep. (laughs) <laughs> Ray Charles covered it in 1961 or around there, and it rose to the top of the charts. The mint julep is now so ingrained with the Kentucky Derby that the governor of Kentucky toast the winner of the Derby with a sterling silver julep cup at the winner's party. And if you are attending the Derby, you'll probably drink a julep that's made with a ready-to-serve cocktail mix unless you pony up uh, 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 uh. <laughs> um, $1,000 for a handmade julep in a collectible pewter cup, the proceeds of which go to a local charity. Oh. Uh, recently to Jennifer Lawrence's, uh, the Jennifer Lawrence Arts Fund. Yes, which helps kids get into the arts. J-Law's apparently from Louisville. 
Yes. Yeah. Yes. A lot of money for a cocktail. That is. But, yeah, it's for a good cause. Yes. That's true. <laughs> it is, as I said at the beginning, a very fancy drink for a very fancy event. Um, but that's that's what we have to say on the mint julep. Yes. And we're going to get into the foods of the Derby after we get into a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. All right. The first food we're going to talk about is the hot brown or the Kentucky brown. Okay. Um, hot brown. What is it? Hard to say from the name, isn't it? I know, right? Uh, yeah, I didn't know if this was until I went to that derby party. I'd heard of it, and I knew it was Kentucky Derby food, but from the name, I could get— there were very little context clues, except that it's a warm food, one and would think. Possibly brown. Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> a hot brown is an opened-faced turkey, bacon, and pimento sandwich topped with Mornay sauce and possibly Parmesan and served— Hot, yes. Yeah, there are variations. Some include sliced ham instead of or in addition to the sliced turkey. Many have slices of fresh tomato. Some sprinkle paprika on top instead of including pimento. But yeah, that's that's the basic 
basic thing. And uh, Mornay sauce, if you're unfamiliar, is a classic French sauce based on a roux. You know, you, you heat butter and flour until it's a lightly toasted paste, and then you add warm milk to create a sauce. If you stop there, that's a bechamel. But for a Mornay, you then go on to add grated cheese. Gruyere is traditional, but white cheddar or Parmesan are often used here in the States. And the current chef at the restaurant where the hot brown was invented strongly recommends Pecorino Romano. Oh. Just FYI. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. The result is is a little bit of of a hot mess. This is where I get into a little bit of like a like a interior internal debate about the term open face sandwich. Uh-huh. Cuz I think that if you have to eat it with a knife and fork, it's no longer a sandwich. Sure. <laughs> it's a casserole and that's different. <laughs> Um, but, oh, no. but anyway, but it's apparently delicious and we got to, well, Annie, I, I can't have pimento or paprika, so I didn't eat one while we were in Kentucky, but you did, Annie. I did. And so did Super Producer Dylan. And we made the foolish mistake. We each ordered one, not knowing. Oh, that the plates were going to be as big as tire wheels and uh, tire wheels. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And <laughs> tire wells, I think is what I was looking for. Yeah. And that, yeah, it was just a giant amount of food. It was we absolutely should have and could have shared one. Um, it was glorious. It was. Uh, <laughs> it was delicious. And it, it was so big. I, okay, I'm wondering if all <laughs> of them are this big because the one I had in Atlanta was not that big at all. Um, and it was pretty open-faced sandwichy. Um, but this one, I wasn't even sure there was Texas toast in there until like several <laughs> bites in. <laughs> Like, you I had don't. to, like, excavate it. <laughs> yeah, I, I was discovering something new in every <laughs> bite. And it was it was really delicious. I mean, it, it was cheese and carbs and salty meat and yeah. tomato on top, a very big slice of tomato on top. Mm. I couldn't finish it. Couldn't do it. That, that was it. Remind me of the name of the restaurant that was at? Winchell's. Winchell's, right. Yes. Terrific place. Yeah, we got, we got pretty much the gambit of... <laughs> The foods we wanted to, we want, we were 100% sure we had to try while we were there to, to do this episode, and that was derby pie, mint julep, and a hot brown. Yeah, we ordered shuffle pies, thinking that was going to be a small plate, and it was huge. It was also huge. It was all the food there was huge. It was it was delicious. It was. I thought I was going to die. Yeah, we had to take in some serious c- considerations, <laughs> to like how much food can we eat in a day? How can we space everything out? Because we were only there for three days. We were. Three days, two nights. Yeah. So we had to be smart and think about it. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. We're gonna put put together some some clips from all of our, our road trip stuff. So we'll we'll get into that in in another episode. But yes, for now, the hot brown history. Hot brown history. Um, this one actually seems fairly clear cut. I'm almost suspicious. (laughs) Um, In 1926, Fred K. Schmidt, a chef at the Brown Hotel in Louisville, was looking for an alternative to ham and eggs. The hotel used to host these supper dance parties, and when the alcohol or dancing became too much, usually around 1 a.m., people would wander into the hotel restaurant. Ah. And Chef Schmidt wanted to have something for them, for drunk people, essentially, drunk, tired people, to order. (laughs) yeah. According to the hotel manager at the time, Rudy Suck, this is how it went down. Chef Smith wanted to use turkey outside of Thanksgiving and Christmas and wanted to create an open-faced turkey sandwich with Mornay sauce. From Suck, I said, that sounds a little flat. 
The chef said, I'm going to put it under the broiler. <laughs> the maitre d' said, it should have a little color, too. So Schmidt said, we'll put two strips of bacon on top of it. And I said, how about some pimento? And voila, <laughs> hot brown. The hotel usually sells about 800 of these a week, but during derby season, they may sell as much as 1,203 days. Oof. So way up. Oh, People yeah. like me and you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you could have it, but you know. Go into town and yeah, I'm not sure that I could, I'm sure that at the right place I could get them to make it not poisonous to me. Sure. But then we've also got burgoo stew. Burgoo stew. What is that, Lauren? It is a hearty, adaptable stew that's good for feeding a whole lot of people from whatever you've got available. The it's got it like gumbo. It's got just infinite variations. But what people agree on is that it contains multiple meats and vegetables mm-hmm. and is slow simmered for hours, like like as little as four and as many as twenty four. Uh, and should be properly prepared outdoors over open wood-fueled fire. Yeah, kind of like Brunswick stew. Yeah, totally, yeah. Um, the, the origin of the name is contested. It may either root from bulgur wheat or from the French ragu, which is another type of stew. Mm-hmm. Classic recipes call for whatever wild game you've got on hand, from venison to duck to squirrel and whatever vegetable you happen to be growing. Common these days, though, um, is a combination of beef, pork, and chicken, uh, generally chunks rather than ground, and vegetables like onions, carrots, celery, and sweet peppers, potatoes, hominy, or fresh corn, tomatoes, cabbage, and beans or peas. Uh, Worcestershire sauce, steak sauce, and hot sauce are common seasonings involved in there to give you kind of a sense of the flavor profile. Uh Uh-huh. There are a few burgoo festivals in Kentucky in the fall. Of course. Uh, <laughs> veteran cooks are sometimes called burgoo meisters. Oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> One of the festivals in Anderson County features both a motorcycle show and an ugly lamp contest. An ugly lamp contest? I've never heard of this, but I want to go to there. Oh, I do too. It, oh, Oh, man. I know, right? Ugly lamp contest. Like, I've seen some ugly lamps in my time, so I really, I'm really curious what people could come up with. With I mean, humans are infinitely creative. This is true. This is true. <laughs> I, um, I have a lot of friends from Kentucky. It's one of those things where I just noticed that probably a very good proportion of my friends are from Kentucky. I'm not sure how or why that happened. But... Um, I was talking to them about burgoo, and I was like, just tell me what's in it. And it was so <laughs> funny trying to pin down, like, any semblance of an answer. It was great. I, it was a great conversation that I very much enjoyed. Oh, uh, yeah. I looked at, like, maybe a dozen burgoo recipes to, to come up with that sort of truncated list. But, <laughs> yeah, but all of – I mean, th- those are, like, the most commonly appearing ingredients, but all kinds of stuff was in there. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the, our food portion, but we do have one other type of food. A dessert. A dessert. So important. Mm-hmm. But first, we have a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. 
Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. And we're back and we're here to talk about Derby Pie. Derby Pie. Oh, oh no. And we've been sued, everybody. Oh. That's it for food stuff. Pack yep. up your things, Lauren. It's time to go. Oh, we had a good run. If anything, it's going to bring us down. We both knew it was going to be Derby Pie. We both knew it was going to be pie for sure of some kind or another. <laughs> That's true. Oh, Derby Pie is litigious. Litigious. That's the word. Yes, yes. litigious as all heck. Uh, tell, tell, tell us what it is and why. Yes. Okay, so Derby Pie first is a delicious dessert. It's sort of a glorified pecan pie. Um, there are a couple of permutations, but in general, you've got the flaky crust, a pecan pie filling, or sometimes walnuts are used, chocolate chips, and bourbon. It's really popular around derby time. Um, the interesting thing about this is this is not the derby pie that is going to sue you. <laughs> um, but more on that in a minute. Um, it's often served warmed, not microwaved. Never microwaved. No, and with ice cream and whipped cream. Bourbon flavor is, of course, a popular option. Bourbon everything. Yes. Um, and the reason for the hilarious we're sued joke um, <laughs> is that the company that claims to have created the pie in 1950, which is Kern's Kitchen in Louisville, is, as Lauren said, quite litigious. Um, on multiple occasions, they have sent restaurants or bars serving, quote, derby pie, cease and desist letters saying that the name is trademarked. Ah. According to Alan Rupp at Kern's Kitchen, beginning in 1950, Grandma Kern would make three pies at a time as a signature item for their family-owned restaurant, Melrose Inn. Her version used walnuts instead of pecans and no bourbon. When the restaurant closed in 1960, they kept the pie business up and running. Kern's Kitchen got the registered trademark for Derby Pie soon after. 
But I will say this is different than the story that appears on the Kearns website. It attributes the pie to George Kern with some help from his parents at Melrose Inn in 1950. The name was chosen among the many suggestions from the family. I believe they drew from a hat, which is funny how often that happens <laughs> Oh yeah, in, in our food history segments. Um, by 1968, they filed for the trademark with the U.S. Patent Office and the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Just remember, if you've never eaten Kern's Kitchen Chocolate Nut Pie, you've never eaten Derby Pie. Registered trademark. <laughs> That's what it says on the <laughs> website. <laughs> Um, Kern's Kitchen went from three pies a day to about 800 a day, and these are modern times. They're very, very protective of their recipe and technique. They close off the mixing area so only the production manager knows what's going down in there. Um, For other restaurants, if a customer orders derby pie, the server is supposed to say, no, we don't have that, but we have chocolate pecan pie or Kentucky bourbon pie. Um, one restaurant serves I Can't Call It Derby Pie. <laughs> um, there's a recipe online for it called Mean Spirited Censorship Pie. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Apparently, Kearns will send in plants to order the derby pie oh, and, and see. see. Yeah. Wow. Pie intrigue. It's a serious business. But um, I will say restaurants can have Kearns Kitchen Derby Pie. Because they license it out. Yes, they do. Um They'll ship it. We had some. What we had in Lexington was the official Kern's Kitchen yeah. Derby pie. Well, we had we had two kinds. We had a Kentucky bourbon pie. Yes. And a it, Kern's Kitchen Derby pie. We had to do a we had to side do a taste by test. side comparison. It was important. Yes. Yeah. For science. Yes. But if if on this menu it says Derby pie, but it's not the Kern's Kitchen Derby pie, that's what these plants from Kern's Kitchen are trying to trying to weasel out. Yeah. yeah. And it's not just restaurants they'll go after either. Bon Appetit got sued by Kearns in 1986 for including a recipe for derby pie. Wow. However, Bon Appetit was like, no, uh and produced all these examples <laughs> from magazines and newspapers across the country to argue the term was generic. And the court sided with Bon Appetit. However, <laughs> when the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit in Cincinnati heard the case, they concluded that actually Bon Appetit had not provided enough evidence, but they perhaps could if they went to trial. But the magazine was like, okay, okay. Never mind. Uh, yeah, not worth it. They settled instead. <laughs> and Kern's Kitchen is trying to keep the trademark and prevent it from becoming a ge- generic term like zipper or Xerox and thereby losing that trademark. And I know Google has specific terminology for their employees uh, to use to try to keep this from happening to them as well. <laughs> I wonder how that's going. I honestly do. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. According to the Kearns family lawyer, they've sued over the name 25 times and send about two cease and desist letters per week. Per week? Per week. Because of this, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, inducted Kern's Kitchen into their takedown hall of shame (laughs) in 2013 for being mean-spirited censors who seek to shut down recipe sharing. Wow. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And I do think it's kind of funny that Kern's is so protective of derby pie, but this might be anecdotal, but I'm pretty sure when most people think of derby pie, they're not thinking of the Kern's recipe version. Right. Most people are thinking of that version I described in the beginning, the glorified pecan pie with chocolate and bourbon. That's what I think. And that it could be because Kern's Kitchen is really only in Kentucky, even though you can get them to ship it. Yeah. There's, yeah, finding a recipe is a lot easier than ordering a pie online or whatever. Right. Or getting whatever your local 
pie restaurant makes that's <laughs> uh-huh. not Kern's Kitchen. Sure, exactly. And legal law stuff. Can you copyright a recipe? Question mark. Not really. No. But you can copyright, trademark a name. A name. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. Well, that is our uh, Derby pie section. And like we said, we did try. We tried them both, and they were both delightful. Oh, goodness. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's a Super Producer Dylan's favorite type of pie. Well, I had never had the Kern's Kitchen one, and it I it was very delicious. And it uh, was more savory almost. It had more of a salty hint to it yeah. than the other one. Kentucky bourbon pie did. Yeah, they were both real good. They were. They were both. I mean, I love a pecan pie. So that's our derby food extravaganza. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like like we said earlier, um, we've got lots of sound from our road trip. We've got two episodes on bourbon forthcoming in in relatively short order um, because we got to, yeah, you know, in in addition to doing our usual food stuff breakdown of a thing, we also had the enormous good fortune to uh, get to interview Eddie Russell of Russell's Reserve, who is their their current uh, active master distiller. So it was wonderful. And we're so excited to share that with you guys. Absolutely. So keep an eye out or an ear out mm-hmm. for that in the coming weeks. But for now, it brings us to listener mail. <laughs> Annie, Annie is always is always conducting. She's always making these conducty <laughs> gestures, and I'm just like, and we're just like sort of staring each other down while we do this. Just peek behind the curtains. One day, we really should be videotaping it. We really should. Anyway. Anyway, Melanie wrote, don't know why I'm just getting around to sending this now, but regarding the confusing etymology and regional uses of different terms for meals, like dinner versus supper, I just wanted to let you know that this is not limited to the English language. Just as a disclaimer, my first language is English, but I'm from Montreal, so I speak French. In France, the word for lunch is déjeuner, breakfast is petit déjeuner, and dinner is usually called dîner, or really souper, but this is seen as somewhat archaic. But here in Quebec, we use the word déjeuner for breakfast, dîner for lunch, and souper for dinner supper. Just thought this would be a fun fact since you both seemed excited by the etymology. We are. Um, (laughs) And I wonder if this confusion comes up in other languages as well. I'm almost 100% certain it does, but listeners... Oh, let us know. Yeah, absolutely let us know. Please do. Yoris wrote... While listening to the podcast about edibles, I was amazed what an impact the whole weed culture has had in the U.S. and the discussion it causes, especially here in the Netherlands, where we apparently have the image of being the stoneheads of Europe, if not the world. Weed is usually not much of a thing. Marijuana is still illegal, but possession for personal use or the use itself is not prosecuted. This has led to the abundance of coffee shops that, in spite of the name, don't sell coffee. But... The most interesting part is that the use of marijuana products in the Netherlands is actually lower than that in the U.S. About 30% of the population instead of over 40%, depending on which survey you look at, the percentages differ a bit. The coffee shops are also most abundant in cities with a lot of tourism, and the language most spoken inside is English. 
I know that still a lot of Dutchies use marijuana, but mostly at a younger age, and people usually stop using it during college or after graduation. Even during my college years, it was never more than a marginal phenomenon. It seems to be far less of an issue in the Netherlands than it apparently is in the U.S. I thought you might be interested to know. Absolutely. That's very different than in the U.S., but also the story we hear about the Netherlands, I will say. Yeah, it's, I mean, I don't know, it's it's drug, drug culture is very fascinating to me in terms of like what the illicitness of substances does to the psyche of the people who would otherwise be marginally interested in using them. Right. I, yeah, the first time I went to a coffee shop in Amsterdam and I was like, ah, I see. <laughs> I, I didn't know. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, it's very interesting and I'm glad to get, um, some perspective from someone who lives there. Who lives there, right, exactly. Yeah, I've, I've, never, I've never been over there, so I don't have a huge conception of it. Yeah. Um, very, yeah, very interesting. Very chill about it. Um, and another thing we wanted to mention before we close this episode out is that Lauren and I will be at the Atlanta Food and Wine Festival. Yes, absolutely. We've got press passes. We're super excited. I was sick last year, and so I missed it, and I'm still mad about it. But now, finally, I think that with Annie and my power combined, we can taste everything. Yeah, I really needed Lauren last year. (laughs) I tried my best. I'm sorry. (laughs) I tried my best, and I I think I I did a pretty good job. You are only one person. I am. I am. There was, and there's not many. <laughs> I had, a, I had a lot of trouble <laughs> trying to like take pictures and eat everything and try everything. And um, I'm very happy we're going to be there. If anyone in Atlanta or anyone's coming from somewhere else to Atlanta for this. Keep an eye out. We'll be around. Yeah, absolutely. I'm and very excited. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if if you are in Atlanta and you're kind of on the fence about going, I'm. I've never been before, but uh, there are hundreds of local and regional and national restaurants that come in and have booths with uh, food and cocktails for tasting. And also, there's so many workshops uh, with with education about various food industrial processes and cooking and all of that. So, check check it out. You can Google and find out about it. Sorry, employees of Google. Oh, no. That's the word now. We're, we're playing into it. Oh. We're playing into it. But we know that we'll be shut down by Kern's Kitchen anyway. Yeah, so yeah, way before don't worry, Google, Google gets to us. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to our um, listeners for writing in. If you would like to write to us, you can. Our email is foodstuff at howstuffworks.com. We're also on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at foodstuffhsw and on Instagram at food stuff. We hope to hear from you. Thanks as well to super producer Dylan Fagan, who you're going to hear more from in the in that uh, that audio from the field trip. He's he's a gem, you guys. His pun game is on point. So strong. <laughs> Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. 
And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park! Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 